Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Well, guess what? We're playing hooky this week. Springtime weather has finally come to Louisville and your nature-loving hosts of Bench Talk are all outside enjoying this warm weather. We just can't resist the sunny skies, the hearkening soil, and the beckoning smiles. The chirping of the birds, the buzzing of the bees, the bursting of the ephemerals, and the flowering trees. Anyway, in honor of spring and in recognition of Earth Day next week, which is Monday, April 22nd, we are rebroadcasting a few of our stories about the environment. We'll start the show off with a story by Dr. Ashley Best about a report on the political repression of environmental activists. That story was originally broadcast back on August 20th, 2018. Following that, Professor Scott Miller will remind us about what alternative energy options we have here in Kentucky for the future. And then I'll review a paper from last year about the impact of global climate change on the world's protected marine environments. Both Scott's and my stories were originally broadcast on October 15th of 2018, and who knows, you might have been out enjoying our beautiful fall weather at that time and missed it. Now, before we hear from Ashley, I did want to update you about a story that we played on this show last week. It was about the landing of the first Israeli spacecraft on the moon. This unmanned craft was supposed to land on the moon last Thursday, April 11th. They started the landing sequence that day. It looked like they were getting ready to land on this flat lava plane of the moon called the Sea of Serenity. In fact, the spaceship had even snapped a photo of one of its landing legs when it was 14 miles above the lunar surface. But then things went bad. The main engine appeared to have some problems. They lost communication with the craft. And it wasn't too soon afterwards that the mission was declared dead. It's disappointing not to receive all that good information that this craft would have been able to gather if it had been able to land. But at least there was no loss of human life, which is a major advantage of sending smart craft robots to outer space instead of actual people. Anyway, we did want to keep you apprised of that situation. Meanwhile, on with the show. Ashley! So I saw this frightening report that came out from the Business and Human Rights Resource Center, which is human rights defenders who are challenging big corporations are being killed, assaulted, harassed, and suppressed in growing numbers. Um, So their data shows that there's a 34% rise in attacks on campaigners defending land, environment, and labor rights in the face of corporate activity. So, I mean, this was just really frightening to me because we need these individuals to stand up and support, um, you know, our planet. And and we may not always know what these corporations are doing. So some of these people on the ground in other countries recognize what's going on. In one case, Shell Oil in Nigeria um, has been caught paying bribes to government officials. They've paid the military to conduct raids in protesters' homes and have hanged innocent protesters to suppress protesting against Shell in Nigeria. 
So the number of incidents they found um, to have sharply risen. And was this in the United States? So this was looking at um, human rights defenders globally. So not specific to the United States, but yeah. basically everyone. And I think that's in part because it seems like these large corporations do try to take advantage of other countries, you know, especially third world countries like Nigeria that have oil that they want. Did they, did they have data about the perpetrators of the violence? Is it police? Um, it does seem like usually the violence is occurring by those in that area that are being bribed by the countries. So it seems like they have influence with the military and government yeah, officials. Yeah, so it might be to, government officials. Yeah, or... to support you know their interests because um, it can be seen as, as a way to help the country if you have a large corporation and they're maybe providing foreign money that pours into these communities. So at the surface level, it looks good. But if these corporations are you know destroying the environment at the same time, that's a big problem. So it seems like they're trying to cover cover that up. Yeah, and that would have such a stifling effect on activists in the area. You think, what? look what happened after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. It, the civil rights movement just really stopped for a while. It, it just really changed. Same with Malcolm X. Yeah, so it's really important. Hopefully we can find ways to support um, these activists so we know what's going on because it's hard to stay informed and know how these companies may be um, violating either human rights excuse me, how these companies are violating human rights or how they are um, affecting our environment. Those countries may not have the same rules for pollution um, or destruction of of land that we do here. Yeah, especially here that's going on in South and Central America. But And you mentioned um, Nigeria and other places in Africa. There are, I believe, out of China, a lot of fishing boats um, that have destroyed reefs and it's something that we hardly hear about, but, you know, uh, there's a big problem with overfishing in the environment, and we don't hear from... Actually, I do know of an example of, of a activist that was silenced that's trying to um, speak out against, you know, the destruction of these reefs. So every once in a while you do hear a case, but, you know, there's probably a reason why we're not hearing from more individuals. Scott here. I was reading in the December issue of Physics Today an interesting article concerning the nuclear energy industry here in the U.S. The gist of the article was that there may be a decline in the number of commercial nuclear power plants and that over the next 15 to 20 years, all such plants in the U.S. may be shut down. Seven reactors have been closed in the last five years, with one more scheduled for next year. Currently in the U.S., there are 98 reactors providing close to 20% of the nation's electricity which translates to about half of the carbon-free power generated here. And carbon-free power is the hook used by the nuclear energy proponents. A recent report created by various U.S. scientific departments has indicated that not only is climate change real, it is happening now. Its effects on the agricultural sector of the U.S. alone may cost billions of dollars by the middle of the century, just two decades from now. As a state that depends on agriculture, this is a big deal. So the generation of energy via carbon-free sources is important. For a better idea about what is meant by carbon-free power and how it applies here in Kentucky, I visited the National Geographic's website that deals with this topic. Its URL is www 
dot national geographic dot com forward slash climate change forward slash carbon free power grid now national geographic is all one word but climate change and carbon free power grid each have dashes between the individual words or you could simply use Google as I did to find the site it allows you to choose your state and then provides a possible energy mix of carbon free sources and it provides information on different power sources and how they may work together according to the US Energy Information Administration as of 2017 Kentucky is the fifth largest coal producer and fifth in the nation in estimated recoverable reserves 79% of Kentucky's net electricity generation is coal-fired fourth largest share in the country and 13% of Kentucky's net generation was from natural gas what this means is that Kentucky does contribute to the current issue of climate change which most scientists agree is due more to human activity than some natural process or processes also according to the EIA site we do have about 37% of all the new hydroelectricity generating capacity which generates about 90% of our renewable carbon free energy unfortunately this contribution is just a drop in the bucket compared to the contributions from carbon produced sources of energy but according to the article on the National Geographic site the mix of carbon free energy in our state could come from 79% solar plants which would replace coal's contribution completely they use photovoltaic cells to convert sunlight to electric energy with the rest coming from residential commercial government rooftops concentrated solar plants and the hydroelectric power we already use along with wind farms some of the pluses from this mix would include things like a reduction of overall energy demand this reduction in demand added to reduced health care costs due to a cleaner environment could result in a substantial average per person annual cost savings of thousands of dollars and land usage from wind farms for example would be about 1.2 percent of the land in the state this land could double as ordinary farmland supporting farmers in the state as one with degrees in physics I have been more than aware of nuclear and other power providers for quite some time here in Kentucky and the states near us coal was and still is the primary source of electrical energy as one born and raised here I knew and still know that speaking against coal is not necessarily a good thing in any case there wasn't any mention on the National Geographic site about the contribution by nuclear power which might be a good thing based on the physics today article the basic premise of nuclear power plant is pretty much the same as that of a coal-powered plant or gas power plant generate heat that is used to create steam the steam is then used to turn rotors on generators moving coils of wire through strong magnetic fields to produce electricity it is a bit more complicated in details but the idea is the same move a coil of wire through a magnetic field or move a magnetic field past coils of wire and you can generate electric current heat produced steam by any means provides the pressure to create that motion but what are the waste products in the case of coal and gas some of that is the emission of greenhouse gases that get vented to the atmosphere there is also the remnant of the burning process especially in coal-fired plants this remnant must be stored somewhere
The same is true with nuclear plants. In this case, the remnant is radioactive waste, some of which will stay radioactive for very long periods of time. This requires stable places to store that material where ruptures by things like earthquakes or storm damage can be minimized. And just like the slag heaps created in the coal burning process, nobody wants nuclear waste stored in their backyard. But at least you have a reduction of carbon emission. Proponents of nuclear blame regulators in the wholesale power markets for failing to give credit to nuclear generators for the social benefits of their carbon-free energy production, credit that is given to wind turbine operators, for example. They also blame the falling prices of natural gas. For those of you that might be coal advocates, this cheap natural gas is what is causing issues with coal power plants being shuttered not the regulations on the industry claimed by some in a particular political party. Nuclear energy proponents also voice concerns from a national security standpoint. The implications is that with no jobs in the nuclear industry because of the decline in plants, there might be less incentive for people joining the Navy, for example, to train for nuclear duty on ships or submarines because there will be no jobs to go to when their enlistment is up. But there are others, who are not big advocates of nuclear power, that say it is possible to find ways to keep the current nuclear fleet operational by taxing carbon dioxide emissions. Finally, nuclear energy proponents argue with a reduction of power plants, the U.S. will lose its influence in the world when it comes to implementing policies on nuclear safety, security, and the non-proliferation of nuclear technology. This latter might be considered important with countries like Iran and North Korea trying to develop that type of technology. As for myself, I have viewed nuclear as one bridge to move us from a carbon-produced energy country to one that does rely more heavily on carbon-free energy production. Of course, in my mind, there is a carbon-free energy production process that is not placed in the mix of energy production. That would be nuclear fusion, the same process that powers the stars. To date, that has been the holy grail of energy production. As one that has always been interested in astronomy, even while I was studying physics for my degrees, I have, as other physicists, dreamed of the day when nuclear fusion, the energy source of the stars, could be the replacement for nuclear fission. Nuclear fusion has the advantage of a waste product that, if captured, may have commercial usage, helium, and the fuel is all around us in the form of hydrogen a plentiful supply of which can be found in water and other sources. Work continues in the development of sustainable nuclear fusion, which might then evolve into a viable commercial product. But the progress has been slow, possibly too slow to make an immediate impact on such problems as climate change and the need to move away from carbon-based energy production to carbon-free energy production. This transition is necessary, perhaps in our lifetime. I wanted to talk about the world's oceans for a bit. As you know, climate change is having a big impact on all of the ecosystems of the world, but the world's marine environments are especially susceptible to climate change. Of course, when people talk about climate change, they're referring to the alterations in global climate patterns or regional climate patterns seen in the last 50 years that are attributable to increased levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide. And of course, CO2 carbon dioxide gets produced and put into the atmosphere whenever fossil fuels are burned, like coal, petroleum, methane, 
but also when wood is burned, decomposition of organic matter, like when forests decay, etc., etc. And as you already know, this extra CO2 that's being put into the atmosphere traps solar energy and causes the air, the water, and the land to all warm up. And you've probably already also heard about how climate change is hurting the marine environments of the world. So it hurts the oceans by causing sea levels to rise, by increasing the intensity of storms like hurricanes, by damaging coral reefs, by altering fish migration patterns, by acidifying the water, and also by the deoxygenation of the water so that fish don't have as much oxygen to breathe. These are all problems that are being made worse because of climate change. But here's a question for you. How about those parts of the ocean that are currently being protected? What about those parts of the ocean where overfishing is prevented? Where animals like polar bears and penguins are being protected? Where coral reefs are being prevented from being damaged? Where mineral and oil extraction is not allowed? Do these protections reduce the effect of climate change? What do you think? Well, wouldn't you know it, I have some research on that. There's some researchers centered at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, but it also involved other campuses around the world. These researchers looked into this question and published a paper in the journal called Nature Climate Change in June of 2018. In the literature review part of their paper, these researchers admit that the answer is sort of already known, and the answer is no. Marine areas that are already protected are not immune to climate change. The Great Barrier Reef in Australia, for instance, that's been protected for many years now, but it's experienced a whole lot of coral die-off due to climate change. These researchers wanted to move beyond anecdotal evidence and investigate this question in more detail. These researchers focused on two big ways that climate change affects marine environments. One, rising water temperature, and two, changing oxygen levels in ocean water. And it's believed that our oceans are absorbing about 90% of the excess heat trapped by greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and methane. This increase in ocean temperature is seen even at the very deepest parts of the ocean. The other factor they looked at, deoxygenation of the water, is a bit more complicated. It turns out when the surface of a body of water heats up, it doesn't absorb as much oxygen from the atmosphere. So the surface of a water is sort of resistant to taking up oxygen when it's heated up. And then whatever oxygen the water does absorb, it doesn't travel down to the lower depths of the ocean as much because warm water expands, which makes the water less dense. And water that's less dense is not going to sink down to the lower depths of the ocean as much. So the researchers looked at how climate change affects water in two different ways. It makes the water warmer, but it makes the water hold less oxygen. This deoxygenation of the water is not equal throughout the globe. These same researchers published a paper back in 2016 where they reported that deoxygenation has already occurred in the southern part of the Indian Ocean and then parts of the eastern tropical Pacific and Atlantic basins. But then other parts of the world aren't as affected by deoxygenation. 
like the east coast of Africa and Australia and around Southeast Asia, the deoxygenation of the ocean water is less severe. So the effect of climate change on ocean deoxygenation is different in various parts of the globe. What's so bad about ocean deoxygenation? Well, deoxygenation is bad for several reasons. First of all, it causes a decline in the population of plankton in the ocean. And plankton is what many animals depend on for food. Secondly, deoxygenation changes the chemistry of the ocean water. And then thirdly, it means that the fish and other animals that live in the ocean have less oxygen to actually consume. Well, to get back to this question of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, known as IPCC, published their latest predictions about changes in global CO2 levels back in 2014. The IPCC is very well respected. It's an international panel of climate experts that the United Nations organized starting back in 1988. Remember back in 2007 when the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, won the Nobel Peace Prize? They shared it with Vice President Al Gore? So they're really the world's premier climate change experts. One of the important jobs of the IPCC is to predict what's going to happen to global CO2 levels in the future. And their last prediction was done back in 2014. And what they included in their report were four different possible trajectories for how the concentration of greenhouse gases might increase during the rest of this century, meaning until the year 2100. So they come up with these different trajectories because there's so many variables that could change in the future that might affect our future levels of CO2 in the atmosphere. What's the population growth going to be like in the future? What's the world gross domestic product going to be in the future? How much air pollution will there be? How is land going to be used? How much energy is going to be consumed by the world in that period? And then what is the source of that energy? Those things could all change. So of course some of the trajectories for CO2 levels in the future are fairly pessimistic, meaning they're going to go, CO2 levels are going to get really high, and then some of them are more optimistic, meaning CO2 levels would be lower. The most optimistic model they've developed has greenhouse gases peaking in 2040 and then starting to decline. Their most pessimistic trajectory has greenhouse gases increasing steadily from now until the end of the century. This more pessimistic model is sometimes called the business-as-usual model. The business-as-usual model is the trajectory that we're currently on. And then between these two extreme trajectories, there's two other trajectories that are more intermediate in their prediction of CO2 levels increasing by 2100. The authors of the study I'm discussing today choose two different trajectories to focus on. There's the business-as-usual trajectory, which was the most pessimistic model from IPCC, and then the second most optimistic model is what they worked on. And in that model, greenhouse gases increase until the year 2070 and then plateau off. They examined 8,236 of the world's marine protected areas, MPAs. These MPAs cover about 4% of the planet's oceans. And then they developed models to predict what would happen to ocean temperature and oxygen levels in these MPAs by the year 2100. 
under these two scenarios that are predicted by these trajectories. In the business as usual model, which was the more pessimistic one, they predicted that sea surface temperature would increase 2.8 degrees centigrade by 2100. That's about 5 degrees Fahrenheit increase in the ocean temperature by the year 2100. For the more optimistic trajectory, they predicted water temperature would rise about half of that, about 2.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Both of these outcomes are bad. The authors predict that this much warming under either one of these models would devastate the species and the whole ecosystems of many of these marine protected areas. This warming of the water seems to occur most dramatically in regions further from the equator like the polar regions, the Arctic and the Antarctic, and in the temperate zones like the Northwest Atlantic Ocean. It doesn't look like the ocean surface temperatures are increasing as much in the tropical and subtropical regions, the parts of the ocean near the equator. It looks different for deoxygenation levels, however. There's quite a bit of loss of oxygen in the ocean near the equator. So this is very concerning. The authors predict that it will be around the year 2050 when we reach emergence. And emergence is the year that sea surface temperatures and oxygen concentrations exceed natural variability. So our oceans will be in an unnatural state in about 30 years unless things change. Dr. John Bruno, who is lead author of this paper, is quoted as saying, With warming of this magnitude, we expect to lose many, if not most, animal species from marine protected areas by the turn of the century. To avoid the worst outcomes, he says, we need to immediately adopt an emission reduction scenario in which emissions peak within the next two decades and then decrease very significantly, replacing fossil fuels with cleaner energy sources like solar and wind." End of quote. While we're waiting for all these alternative energy sources, however, we as individuals, and that includes companies and workplaces, institutions, we could do our own part in reducing the amount of CO2 that's put into the air. We can adjust our thermostats. We can turn off lights that we don't need. We can turn off computers when we're not using them. We could drive smaller cars. We could idle those cars less when we're not driving. We could recycle more, etc. Instead of playing the blame game, I think we could all examine our own behaviors. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org 
This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.